Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week I explore a case, the victims and the facts and the mysteries surrounding it. Some of the cases are solved, but some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. Since it's getting close to Halloween, I wanted to do a case with some supernatural elements. This case fits the bill. On February 14, 1945, on a small farm in England, Charles Walton was found murdered. The quiet farmer was stuck to the ground with a pitchfork, his throat slashed. Many locals believed it was part of a blood sacrifice or that he was a witch. But who would want this mild-mannered man dead? This week, I look at the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. 74-year-old Charles Walton was born in 1870 in Quinton, in Warwickshire, England, where he ended up spending his entire life. The area is a small village with a population of only a few hundred. You know, exactly what you think of when you picture an English countryside. Charles Walton was a widower, and he lived with his 33-year-old niece, Edith, who he adopted when she was a baby after the death of her mother. And together they lived at 15 Lower Quinton, in Warwickshire, England, on a small farm called The Firs, which is situated on the slopes of Meon Hill. Charles was an agricultural worker, and he spent his entire life in that area. He was something of a loner, and many say he had strange abilities. He was somewhat of a horse whisperer. He could calm and control horses with the motions of his hand. Some said he could control wild dogs with just the sound of his voice. 
and wild birds would eat seed directly from his open palm. So imagine an old male Snow White. And even though he kept mostly to himself, he was well-liked in the area, which makes what happens next very confounding. So on February 14th, 1945, Charles Walton left home with a pitchfork and a slash hook. A slash hook is a double-edged pruning implement with a straight edge on one side and a concave cutting edge on the other. Two witnesses recall seeing him pass through the churchyard around 9 to 9.30 a.m. And he was carrying his large walking stick, which he used due to his rheumatic joints. Despite that, he worked when he could at the Furs. It's a farm run by Alfred Potter. And that day, he was slashing hedges in a field known as Hillground on the slopes of Meon Hill. So a little about Meon Hill. It's nestled between the Cotswold villages of Mickleton, Upper, Upper Quinton, and Lower Quinton. Legend says it was formed by the devil around the 8th century, when he threw a large bit of earth at Evesham Abbey, trying to destroy it. A bishop saw what was happening and began to pray. The clod of earth missed its intended target. It landed and formed Meon Hill. In Celtic folklore, the hill is haunted by phantom dogs belonging to the king of the other world, and they are said to be harbingers of death and agents of the devil. So when his niece, niece Edith returned home from her job, she'd been working at a printer's assembler at the Royal Society of Arts. And due to the war, it had been relocated to Lower Quinton. She got home around 6 p.m., and was somewhat alarmed not to see her uncle there. He was normally back from working in the fields by around 4 p.m. every day. And at first, she didn't think much of it. She thought he might have been at the pub or visiting with friends. But as time passed, she became more and more bothered that he hadn't come back. Edith went to her neighbor, Harry Beasley's home, which was at 16 Lower Quinton, to employ his help in finding her uncle. Harry Beasley was also an agricultural worker. So together they went to his boss, Alfred Potter. Potter ran the farm, known as the Furs, for his father for many years. When they asked Potter about her uncle, he said he recalled seeing him earlier working on the hedges. So the three set out to where Potter had last seen Charles Walton. This is where they came upon a gruesome sight. Charles lay on the ground. He had been beaten over the head with his own walking stick. It lay nearby with clumps of flesh and hair attached to it. His neck had been cut with his own slash hook, which was embedded in his neck. And the wounds were so deep he was almost beheaded. The prongs of his pitchfork were driven through his neck and lower face, pinning him to the ground. And according to some unsubstantiated accounts, he had a crucifix carved into his chest. Edith screamed loudly, overcome at the sight of the brutal scene. Beasley grabbed her and pulled her away to protect her from the sight of her beloved uncle pinned to the ground. A neighbor had been passing by when he heard Edith's screams. His name was Harry Peachley. He ran to alert the police while Potter stood guard over the crime scene. Beasley, meanwhile, took the distraught Edith back down the hill 
the first policeman on the scene was P.C. Michael James Lomasny, who arrived around 7 p.m. Stratford, upon Avon CID, came later, joined by the Midlands Forensic Laboratory around 11.30 p.m. The body was finally removed around 1.30 a.m. So at 11 p.m., Alfred Potter's statement was taken. He told of how he'd been running the farm for about five years for his father, and that whole time he knew Charles Walton, having employed him straight for the last nine months. He'd been working on the hedging at Hillground. So Potter stated he had been at the local pub called the College Arms, having a drink with Joseph Stanley, a farmer at White Cross Farm, and this was until around noon. So when he left the pub, he went straight across to a small field adjoining Hillground. From there, which was about 500 to 600 yards away, he said he saw Charles working on the hedge. He had about 6 to 10 yards left to cut, and later when they found the body, he noticed four additional yards had been slashed which would have meant about a half hour's work. Charles usually stopped work each day around 11 a.m. for lunch and then resuming work until 4 p.m. And asked to describe Charles Walton, Potter said he was, quote, an inoffensive type of man, but one who would speak his mind if necessary. Due to the nature of the crime, Scotland Yard was brought in on the case. There was a nearby camp of Italian war prisoners. The initial thought was that the killer could have been a madman or one of the prisoners, in which case they would need an Italian interpreter. They would also need help searching the vast area. Of special notice would be Charles's missing watch, virtually the only item missing from his person. The local pawnbrokers would need to be notified. On February 16th, two senior detectives from London arrived. They were Chief Inspector Robert Fabian, who was the premier detective of his time, and his partner, Detective Sergeant Albert Webb. And with them was Detective Sergeant Saunders of the Special Branch, who would serve as an interpreter due to his fluent Italian. So immediately the case was shadowed by the supernatural. On the scene was the head of Warwickshire CID, Detective Superintendent Alex Spooner. He told Fabian about a 1929 book called The Folklore, Old Customs, and Supernatural in Shakespeare Land, written by Reverend James Harvey Bloom. So Harvey Bloom was a local rector from the area and the father of author Ursula Bloom. The book was folk stories and superstitions that were especially unique to the area of the region. What brought it to Spooner's attention was a very particular story. In the story, a young plowboy had met a phantom dog for nine days straight on his way home from work. The very last time he encountered the dog, this time it was with a headless woman. Later that night, the boy's sister died. The boy's name? Charles Walton. So was this folklore story an actual account of Charles Walton's childhood? It was a big coincidence, if not. He also recalled another strange occurrence seeming to tie to Charles Walton. This was the murder of Anne Tennant. 
or Ann Turner as stated in some different accounts. This murder had occurred 70 years ago in 1875 in Long Compton, and that's about 15 miles from Lower Quinton. Ann left her home around 8 p.m. to go buy a loaf of bread, and on her way back she encountered some farm workers that were out harvesting the fields. One of these men was James Haywood, and he had known Anne's family for years. He was described as simple-minded, which at that time could be anything from mentally challenged to just having a low IQ. The men had all been drinking after a long day's work. Without warning, Haywood attacked Anne with a pitchfork, stabbing her in the legs and head. Another farmer heard the commotion and he ran to the woman's aid, restraining the man until police arrived. The badly wounded Anne was taken to her daughter's home, where she perished around 11.15 p.m. Haywood had attacked her saying she was a witch. He declared there were 16 others and that they would all suffer the same fate. In his words, the witches had plighted the crops. James Haywood was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sentenced to Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, which is kind of interesting because I actually mentioned Broadmoor in my last podcast. He was incarcerated there until his death at the age 59 in 1890. But there is some debate as to whether the deaths of Anne Tennant and Charles Walton were very similar. So rumors say that she was also pinned to the ground with a pitchfork. And others say she wasn't pinned, only stabbed with the pitchfork. But another bizarre connection was made after Charles Walton's death. Newspapers looking into the connections between Anne and Charles found that her maiden name was Anne Smith. She'd married twice, with her last husband being John Tennant. Charles's great-grandparents were Thomas Walton and Anne Smith. So was this the same Anne Smith? After doing research, it was apparent that she was the right age. So could she have been killed in the same manner as Charles, or was she Charles's great-great-grandmother and killed in the same manner is the question. Despite all the superstition surrounding this case, Detective Fabian chose to stay closer to the facts. And of course, Alfred Potter was his main suspect. Since P.C. Lomasny knew Potter and his wife Lillian, he was told to stay close to the subject in the hopes that he might reveal something. Detective Saunders, the one fluent in Italian, was sent to investigate the prison camp. There he found a very free atmosphere where the war prisoners could virtually roam free at will. In fact, they didn't even keep any record of who was and wasn't in the camp on a daily basis. Regardless of the loose confinements of the prisoners, no one could really see a motive there. The autopsy was conducted by Professor Webster. He found that Charles's trachea was cut, his head almost severed. He had defensive wounds on his left hand and bruises on his right hand and forearm. He'd been hit upon the head several times with his own walking stick, crushing his skull. He had broken ribs and bruises on his chest, but there was no apparent mention of this supposed crucifix carved into his chest. His shirt was opened and his trousers unfastened at the top, the top button undone. 
On February 17th, Detective Sergeant Webb conducted a second interview with Alfred Potter. Potter was 40 years of age and once again stated that his father was the proprietor of the farm called the Furs. And Charles had worked at the Furs for about four days a week, except in wet weather. He said he paid him 18 pence per hour, usually at the end of each fortnight or by the week. He let him set his hours and claimed to even pay him for some that were not worked. He last paid him on February 10th. So Potter said he left College Arms to go to a field called Cax Lees to see about some sheep and calves. It was around 12.20 p.m. when he said he saw Charles working in the field in his shirt sleeves, or long sleeves as we would say here. He remembered thinking that was unusual to be so dressed, saying to himself, he's getting on with it today. From there, he needed to get a heifer out of a ditch, so he didn't stop to talk to Charles. He stopped home around 12.40, and then he went to get the heifer. On February 20th, P.C. Lomasny mentioned it to Potter that they would have to attempt to get fingerprints from the murder weapons. Potter said he may have touched the weapons when Beasley urged him, urged him to check Charles's vitals, saying, you better have a look to make sure he's gone. So Potter said he actually suspected one of the fascists from the war camp of the murder. Then on February 23rd, Fabian wrote his initial police report after speaking to Potter himself. Potter stated that he went to Cax Lee and then stopped home to read the paper. He said he then went to help one of the workers on his farm, a guy named Charles Henry Happy Bachelor, to pulp some mangolds. Both men noticed that it was about 1 p.m. by looking at the church clock. Mrs. Potter confirmed that he had stopped home around 12.30 p.m. He asked about dinner, which she said would be soon. He left and returned around 1.05 p.m. And his alibi was also confirmed by Joseph Stanley, who was drinking with him at the pub. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. But Fabian had issue with Potter's statements. So the night of the murder, Constable Lamasney said Potter appeared very upset and kept saying that he was cold. So he thought this was odd since this man slaughtered animals. He should be used to a gruesome sight like that. Potter claimed to be so cold that he wanted to leave before the Stratford police arrived. The constable thought this too was very odd. I mean, working on a farm, he should be used to being in all kinds of weather while tending to the animals. And the police turned up just as he was leaving. One huge inconsistency in his statements concerned the heifer. So the heifer actually drowned in Doomsday Ditch on the 13th and was not removed until 3.30 p.m. on the 14th. And that's around three hours later than Potter claimed to have gone to retrieve it. In one statement, he said he was going to fetch the heifer, and another he claimed to go pulp mangolds. Fabian said, Potter is undoubtedly lying about his actions at this critical time, but the reason for these lies can be, for the present, only a matter of conjecture. So there's also the matter of the shirt sleeves that Potter claimed to see Charles working in. But Charles was actually found wearing a jacket and underneath his sleeves were cut off above the elbow. So there's no way Potter could have seen him in his shirt sleeves. Beasley then also refuted the claim that he was asked to, he asked Potter to check Charles's vitals. He said it was obvious upon arriving at the scene that Charles was dead. No reason to even check his pulse. And he didn't see Potter touch any of the murder weapons. Potter only claimed to have touched them after the constable mentioned obtaining the fingerprints. So was he nervous they might find something? He actually never mentioned touching anything until the issue of fingerprints was brought up. Potter was also found to have lied about the wages that he paid to Charles. After they looked at the sums paid to Walton against the ledger from the L.L. Potter and Company, it was very apparent that there were discrepancies. Potter had been claiming more than he needed to pay employees and then pocketing the difference. So one wonders if Charles discovered this and confronted Potter, then leading to an argument and maybe the subsequent murder. Potter had returned to the murder scene early in the morning on February 15th, just a day after the killing. A constable was ordered to stand guard over the crime scene. And he recalls Potter just stopping by and making small talk about the weather. The constable sent him on his way, saying he should not be near the crime scene. And this appearance is what actually made Fabian want to do a second interview with Potter. However, as much as he might have suspected Potter of the murder, there simply was not enough evidence to connect him. Like he said, it was all conjecture. So the detectives eventually returned to London the murder remaining unsolved. It became the only unsolved case in Fabian's illustrious career and the oldest unsolved case of the Warwickshire police. Fabian went on to write many popular books, including Fabian of the Yard, London After Dark, and Anatomy of Crime, which was turned into the very first British TV police procedural series called Fabian of the Yard. 
and it ran from 1954 to 1956 based on his memoirs. In his initial reports, he simply stated the facts. There was no mention of witchcraft or anything superstitious. But 25 years later, he wrote this. I advise anybody who is tempted at any time to venture into black magic, witchcraft, shamanism, call you what it will, to remember Charles Walton and to think of his death, which was clearly the ghastly climax of a pagan rite. There is no stronger argument for keeping as far away as possible from the villains with their swords, incense, and mumbo-jumbo. It is prudence on which your future peace of mind and even your life could depend. So what did Fabian even truly believe happened that night? From here, let's get into some theories about witchcraft. So when Charles Walton's home was searched, his back garden was discovered to be overrun with toads specifically natterjack toads. It was rumored that he'd been breeding them to thwart the neighboring fields. There's something called blasting, which is the use of toads to infest crops. And in British witchcraft, going back to the 16th century, toads were collected and burned, thought to be familiars of witches. Blasting is an old witch's spell. The crops in the region were bad the year prior to Charles Walton's murder. There were rumors that he had blighted the crops with witchcraft. And at some point to the day, he was killed as having some significance. It was Candlemas Day on the old Julian calendar. That's a day of celebration of the presentation of Jesus in the temple. It's also the pagan festival of Imbolg, or St. Bridget's Day. That marks the beginning of spring since it's held halfway between winter solstice and the spring equinox. The festival is devoted to the good health of upcoming crops. And on the old Julian calendar, it would be February 2nd rather than the 14th, which was a day to perform blood sacrifices according to local superstition. So if the locals believe he blighted the crops, was this actually a ritual sacrifice to replenish the soil? Professor Margaret Murray has written extensively on the subject of European witchcraft. She said this is all a balance of nature. If he was blamed for the failure of the 1944 harvest, then the spilling of his blood into the soil would have been a sacrifice. And there's also rumors of a black dog omen. So the people of the area were long held to old superstitions. Phantom black dogs were said to roam the area. If seen, it was a harbinger of death, much like the folklore story of the boy Charles Walton. So remember, he had seen a black dog for nine days straight. And the last time it was with a headless woman. The next night, his sister died. And there's still much debate over whether the two were the same Charles Walton. The murdered Charles Walton did indeed have a sister. In fact, he had three sisters and two brothers. However, none died in 1885, as the story said. So maybe the name was just coincidence. Anyway, let's get back to the black dog. Folklore claims a phantom dog roamed the area. So many of you know of The Hound of the Baskervilles, which was written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle back in 1902. That story tells of a murder in the English countryside involving a hound of supernatural origin. Sir Charles Baskerville is found dead on his estate. A look of horror is frozen on his face. 
the attending doctor suspects a heart attack. Footprints of a giant hound were found nearby, causing him to wonder if the beast frightened the man to death. In the story, the family was under a curse from an ancestor who offered his soul to the devil. The hound then collected the soul. It was the very first story featuring the appearance of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And spoiler alert, he solves the case. But I won't ruin it entirely. Give it a read. It's very good, and I remember it leaving chills down my spine when I read it as a child. When Charles Walton was murdered, Fabian thought it was odd that no one in the area came forward with any kind of information. In fact, no one seemed alarmed that a murderous maniac was on the loose. With it being such a small village, it had to be someone from that area. Fabian recalls the locals being reluctant to talk. He said, There were lowered eyes, reluctance to speak, except for talk of bad crops, and a heifer that died in a ditch. But what had that to do with Charles Walton? Nobody would say. I think this has to do with a story that Fabian then told about a black dog encounter. So a day after the murder, Fabian was walking at dusk on Meon Hill, and he noticed on a nearby stone wall a black dog that was watching his every move. As he walked back to the village, he passed a young boy, and he stopped and asked him if he'd lost his dog. But the boy seemed perplexed by the question, so he then mentioned it being a black dog. At this, the boy turned deathly pale and then fled in the other direction. Fabian thought this was odd, but he was unfamiliar with the local superstition. Word, of course, got around that Fabian had seen the ghost. The next day, a cow dropped dead in a field near Meon Hill. And Fabian recalls in his memoir that after that, the locals were even more reluctant to speak to him. He wrote, When we walked into the village pub that evening, silence fell like a physical blow. Cottage doors shut in our faces, and even the most innocent witnesses seemed unable to meet our eyes. Well, of course, these people were terrified that he'd seen the black dog, this harbinger of death. I mean, it's no wonder no one wanted to speak to him. So setting aside any of the folklore about black dogs or witchcraft, there's still some tangible mysteries about this case. One is the missing watch belonging to Charles Walton. So it was the only thing missing from his person. The watch was found many years later in 1960, and it was found in the outhouse of Charles Walton's cottage, despite a very extensive search of the area in which metal detectors were even brought in to use. So how did they miss it the first time? Or was it then returned to the property? My guess it was probably just missed. The other mystery is uh, Charles Walton's missing money. So when he became a widower in 1927, he was left with a substantial bit of money. And he took this money and put it into an account. However, at the time of his death, there was only two pounds left in his account. So where did all this money go? And no one seems to know. The final question in the case is where is the body of Charles Walton? So after his death, he was buried in the cemetery in the churchyard across from his cottage and very near to the death scene. However, there's no longer a gravestone and no one can even find the plot. Many think the headstone was removed. 
The area was very notorious because of the death, much to the dismay of the locals. So it's thought that maybe they removed the headstone to foil any sightseers. In the end, the death of Charles Walton is as much of a mystery as it was the day it happened. No one knows why anyone would kill a farmer so viciously with his own pitchfork blade and walking stick. <laughs> if it were just a money dispute, why such a brutal display? Or was this a ritual done to replenish the soil? One really wonders if there's any truth to the superstitions. Whether or not you believe in all that, it's a very creepy addition to the story. I happened upon the story after reading an article online about various occult killings. I'd never heard of it before. If you want to read a really good article about it, read one titled Ritual Murder in Rural England, The Strange Case of Charles Walton, written by Mark Lasky. I found it to be a perfect blend of facts and mystery surrounding the case. And I thought this case had been the perfect blend of folklore and actually really horrific facts. And it was really perfect for this time of year. So I wanted to give a big thank you uh, to a couple of people this week. I wanted to uh, thank Jim Goodluck from a Facebook group called Podcasts We Listen To. He went out of his way to write a glowing recommendation on my podcast and he posted it to the group. And he said some really great things and this really boosted my listens. So thank you so much. And what's really funny is I was at a low point that day. You know, I had all this self-doubt. I was worried about how I was doing, if anyone's listening, you know, if I was any good, just the usual things. And then I read that. And then later on in the week in another Facebook group called True Crime Podcast, Glennis Tanner posted a recommendation too. Despite not liking the name of the podcast, I was given another great review. And this just totally blows me away. Thank you guys so much. These boosts dramatically boosted my listens. And it's so hard to, you know, to set yourself apart in the podcast world. It's been a struggle. And the fact that anyone listens to me just blows my mind away. I do put a lot of hard work into it. And working in retail, it's very hard not having a set schedule to work on this podcast. So these mentions left me with such an impact. Thank you guys so much. And if you're looking for any recommendations, I have some for you this week. Definitely check out Mindhunter on Netflix. It's the beginning of the profilers John Douglas and Robert Ressler, directed by David Finch. And, you know, a good bit of it was filmed in the Pittsburgh area. And I've read both of their books, so I was super excited to start watching it. And so far, it's absolutely amazing. So check this out. And like so many people out there, I have to recommend the true crime podcast, Dirty John. Initially, I did not want to listen to it because so many people were talking about it. But I gave it a chance and I binged it just like everyone else. It's very well done. The less said about the story, the better. So just give it a listen and don't do any research on it. It really grabs you. Another great podcast right now is called The Payless Murders. So this is part recreation and part narration about murders that happened in a place called the Payless Grocery Store. And I think this was in the early 80s. So I'm really loving that. If you want a good read, uh, try Caitlin Darty's From Here to Eternity. 
So she's a mortician in California. She traveled the world to see how many different cultures do funerals and celebrate death. And it was very eye-opening and a really good read. It makes you think about just how people do funerals and kind of the silly way we do them here in America. So I'm also reading Bill James' book called The Man from the Train. He tries to connect all the various axe murders that occur to families in the early 1900s, mostly in the Midwest. And most people know of the Velisca axe murders. He does a lot of research, and I really think he's onto something. It's really interesting. Pretty long book, so I'm only about halfway through it. So guys, thanks for listening. Check out the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page. I have a Twitter account at Blonde Red Rum and an Instagram page. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your recommendations. And I really hope you tune in next week.